Okay, just a reminder, uh, I, I am recording this. I failed this week to get it up on a website and to get that out to everybody. I will next week uh, with the, uh, the recordings of this, just so if anybody misses and you'd like to follow along with what we're covering, which is good since we're going through the confession of faith and a beginning to end uh, after today, um, then the recordings will be up there uh, for you to, uh, to pull down. Now today, we're focusing on history primarily. So uh, anybody in here a history buff? You really enjoy history? There we go. Got it. One, two, three, four. Okay, this is good. This is good. You know, I, I'll be honest. Uh, years back when I was going through school, through high school, through college, after college, I hated history. There's dates and, uh, and names, and that's exactly what I'm giving today, dates and names. But, uh, and so it was boring. But uh, when I came to faith, and it, and it took a little while, but history slowly became more and more important to me. And so I guess I'd raise my hand as one of those today that really does uh, does like history. It helps provide, doesn't it, the, the context in which things happen. And that's really what we're looking at today with the Westminster Confession. As we open up the Confession, uh, I, I guess everybody here knows this, but we're opening up to something that is you know, more than 400 years old. And uh, so it... it uh, it helps. I guess it's 400 years old, around about that. Uh, so um, it helps to know the context because it really was written in a certain context, and it is an interesting context, by the way. I hope you'll see that as we go through. In fact, uh, when the Westminster Assembly was together, uh, often uh, that's the, the group of, of men who were putting putting together the confession, the catechisms, and many other documents, uh, they'd often hear cannon fire outside uh, and the fighting that was going on on the outside. So you can imagine what that would do to, to spur you on and hopefully to focus your attention on the work that you're doing uh, in a good way, and I think it did. Uh, well, let me say a prayer uh, for us, and then we'll begin talking about history. Father, we thank you uh, for the ways that you work, and we thank you, Lord, for the ways that you work in time, uh, that we are not a, a people who have had a, a faith and a knowledge of you that's kind of dropped down out of, out of heaven and uh, is just given to us with a set of commands, this is the way that you are to, to live, uh, but... We are a people whose faith is based on a relationship, and a relationship that is, is seen through the course of history so that the Lord Jesus came and, and lived amongst us uh, and was like us in every ways, the Bible says, accepting sin, uh, and therefore went through all the things that we do, uh, just an indication, one indication of your great care for us, your love for us. We thank you for that. Thank you for uh, these certain periods in, in time, in, in history, in which you have provided your church with something that is very much needed, very much helpful, uh, that, uh, that we can use today in order to draw closer to you, to come to a greater understanding, to bind together closer with one another, and to be your church as we live it out, uh, live out the Christian life. And uh, so we thank you for that and, and pray that you, you will open our minds this morning. Uh, to be able to see this document in a greater way, and therefore, and this is the basis for all of it, Lord, to see and understand your word in a greater way that we might know you. 
that we might walk with you and, and live before you and be your servants and go uh, into this world uh, serving you and, and proclaiming the gospel. So we do pray for your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, I, I just want to say right at the beginning, we're going to cover some, and fairly quickly, uh, some of the English and Scottish or Great Britain uh, history during a certain time period. So the 1500s, 1600s is what we're going to focus upon. Uh, and as we do that, just to provide a little bit of the context, uh, the I think everybody here knows that what we call the Reformation began about, there were beginnings prior to this, but uh, began uh, in 1517, that's when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, and it was, it was an, in a sense, an uprising, or uh, it, it, was, it was kind of bottoms up in the sense that uh, it, it was, there was a concern on the, the behalf of, uh, of those who followed the faith there was a concern that the faith had gone astray, the church had gone astray, uh, in a big way. And so it was, uh, it was Martin Luther, it was Zwingli, it was Calvin, it was, it was all of these people, but many, many more, and the people themselves uh, who followed. And that was their affirmation. It was a following of these, the, uh, of these people, the truth, and seeking after the truth. So it was bottoms up. Well, what we see with the English Reformation, which followed, it was part of the whole same Reformation, but in a sense it was top-down. Uh, and that's what I want to describe, starting with uh, certain characters with uh, King Henry VIII. Now, I will say, as I, as I name some of these uh, characters, especially monarchs, some of the kids among us, I think you're going to know these uh, better than we do. They, they, they're fresh. They're having them, I think, in some of their classes. So... Um, but we're, we're going to start with uh, King Henry VIII. And I, as we go through from King Henry VIII and go all the way through uh, to King Charles in England, you, you'll see the dates on there. King Henry VIII, 1509. This is, these are the dates that the monarch served, 1509, 1547, for a long time uh, he was serving. But as we go through these, I want you to recognize that this is the struggle that was taking place. Uh, within England and within Scotland, even before England. It was between this. So England and the Church of England had been completely under Roman Catholicism and under the Pope. Uh, and so that's where their authority lay. Uh, and here's the Reformation that took place. Um, Protestants slash Reformed. Can somebody give a, just up front, just a, a, a bare definition because these are two different words, and we sometimes we use them interchangeably, but they're not really. So, what what is Protestant? How, how do we usually use it? Um, okay, not Catholic. Good. Actually, I like that. that. That's a very good definition. Not Catholic. It was those who protested, and so we call it the Protestant Reformation that took place uh, on the continent. Protestant Reformation. They they were against this uh, the Roman Catholic Church and establishment and. And the authority that was there through the Pope, and uh, there were many other factors, and we're going to jot some of those down in a moment. Uh, but that's what this is. And so today, when we when people say I'm a Protestant, or we talk about Asians, Protestant, or, or people, uh, that's largely what we're talking about. Not Roman Catholic. Reformed, on the other hand, 
That's what happened. The Reformation, uh, uh, there was a there was a Reformed faith. There was a, a certain understanding of God's Word that went along with it. But not everyone who is Protestant is Reformed, are they? And so there were those who followed the Reformed teaching, the Reformed understanding, which the Reformers would say go back to the, the, found, the, the, the fathers of the faith. Okay, so I just want an understanding of those two words. I'm going to kind of put them together in what's happening at this uh, at this stage of the game. So um, uh, there's this tug of war that's taking place between the two, and you'll see this with each of the uh, each of the monarchs. Another general comment to make is that politics and religion were intertwined uh, in, in a great way, and you'll see that right off the bat. Uh, and so, the really the success of the Reformed faith in England depended to a large extent upon the monarchy. Now, that wasn't true at all in, uh, in on the continent when the original Reformation took place. But in England, it was true, and uh, we'll see that uh, right off with King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII, at a certain point, uh, he took... The Church of England, he split it apart from Roman Catholicism, from the authority of the Pope. And here's the reason that he did it. Some of you may, may know this. He wanted a male heir. So was it theology? No. <laughs> was it, uh, you know, he, he loved the, the teaching of Luther? Not at all. Uh, no, he wanted a male heir, and his, uh, his current wife, uh, he believed, and he actually pulled this from Scripture from a couple of spots, but he said uh, that God is not intended for me to have a male heir through her, and so I must divorce her and marry another woman who happened to be very beautiful, um, and he was very much attracted to her, but she said, she said no to all his advances until he divorced, and that was Anne Boleyn. So you probably heard the name Anne Boleyn. This was his second wife. King, uh, King Henry VIII ended up having eight wives. I'm sorry, six wives. Uh, I got a six one, yeah. There's probably a song that goes along. Like I said, there are certain people I should have come up and, and share this with you. They probably know a lot more about about this line of, of the monarchy here uh, back in the 16th century. But uh, so King Henry VIII, uh, that was the reason they broke away. The Pope would not allow him to divorce his wife, uh, and which. Catherine of Aragon, that was his first wife. Uh, so if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, you'll know about Aragon. Uh, so he broke away for that reason, and there were all these acts that he put together. One was called the Act of Supremacy, in which uh, he basically said, I am able to be the supreme head of the church. And you can imagine, now you've got a civil, in, in England, a civil uh, monarch who is the head of the church. And that's the way it continued from there. And that, that has a lot to do with what happened in, uh, in England. Uh, now, it, in doing this, he hit it in this direction, right? So the Church of England began to be reformed. And so there were, there were certain people who, uh, you know, pastors and theologians and, and those who loved the Lord who were very excited by this and, and desired this, and especially up in Scotland. Uh, they they did. And so at this point, uh, he was headed in this direction. He made a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Everybody knows his name. 
uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, which was the top important post in uh, in England uh, in the church, and and that's what he wanted. Uh, Cranmer wanted the Reformed faith to come into England. Um, he wanted the Church of England to be aligned with those on the continent who were reformers, uh, and so we're, we're headed in that direction. Now, King Henry the uh, King Henry the Eighth he did have a male heir. Anybody know who his male heir was? What? Edward. Exactly. So. Uh, this was Edward VI. He became he became king as Edward VI. Uh, we got some uh, some pictures that are being handed out here of either Anne Boleyn or some of the others. But uh, King Edward VI was nine years old when he became king. Do we have any nine years nine year old nine or ten here? Okay, Sarah. We got a, got a couple. Actually, can you can anybody that's nine or ten stand up up here? And then, if, if there's anybody here that's 16, I know of at least a couple of people that are 16. Sorry, you've got to come up and stand, too. But, but stand over here next to the... Okay, we got three at least that I know of. So, well, Caleb's kind of in the middle. <laughs> we'll allow him to stay seated. Okay, so King, King Edward became king when he was nine years old. That's you guys. You think he could rule the country? Sure, why not? <laughs> Shall he remain? What? Oh, probably get that. Unless you had advisors, and King Henry, I'm sorry, King Edward did have advisors that helped him. Uh, now, he lived until he was 16 years old. He reigned in England. So you kind of see the, the, the range there. We won't show all the ages in between. Thanks, guys, for standing up. Appreciate that. You can give us a visual there. Um, and so King Henry VI was actually known for taking the faith in a far greater way in this direction. You can imagine a, a child, nine-year-old, uh, becoming king and, until he's 16. But he did have uh, a couple of uh, advisors. And during this time, both Oxford and Cambridge became largely reformed. They reformed teaching throughout. They had wonderful uh, who came over from the continent, uh, um, theologian pastors that uh, that helped uh, with that process. Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, came up with what was called the Forty Two Articles, which was a reformed confession of faith. Uh, that stuck around for a, a, a number of years until it was reduced a little bit, changed a little bit. It became the Thirty Nine Articles, uh, which became part of the basis uh, to some extent for. What we've got uh, today with the Westminster Confession, uh, it was used at least in, uh, in different ways. But the point is, this is where the, the church was headed. It looked like, in fact, under uh, under King Edward, it looked like the church was going to be reformed. Like he was going to live for many years. Well, he died uh, at age 16. And the next, next monarch who came uh, was, I, I think she was the daughter of... King Edward's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Does anybody know what her name was? Mary. Mary. Yeah, a number of people. What was her? Bloody Mary. Thank you. I'm going to ask it. So we've all heard about Bloody Mary, right? Well, you know, 
this was news to me when I started studying all this. The Bloody Mary was not in was not a, a, a queen for very long. It was only about uh, 1552 to 1558, maybe 1553. So five, six years that she was queen. But in that five or six years, um, here's the direction that things headed. It, again, it was a tug of war, and, and, and in a big way, she was Catholic through and through. She wanted the, the Pope to return as the authority of the church, and uh, she left you know, no stone unturned in order to do that. Uh, and, and so she, she did kill many uh, of the pastors. Uh, in fact, uh, under her, uh, I guess, leadership, uh, Cranmer, uh, if you've heard of Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, there were many others who were big names uh, that were, were tied to the stake and burned. Uh, during her time. And many others, this is interesting, many others headed to the continent uh, and they were taught under Calvin and under others uh, on the continent. And so what really happened during her time was that the Lord strengthened the church in, a, in, in an interesting way, even when it seemed like it was uh, you know, very weak. Uh, John Knox was one of those who came over uh, to the continent, studied under uh, uh, under John Calvin, and then later went back and was foundational in you know, what we often look at him as the father of, of this church, of the Presbyterian Church. And so, uh, very important what happened. Well, in 1958, I'm sorry, 19, uh, in 1558, uh, Mary died of so-called unnatural causes. I think anytime we say natural causes, what was that? The, the Lord, I think, had a hand in this. But uh, Mary died on the same uh, the same night. The man that she had, I don't have his name here, but she had made Archbishop of, of Canterbury and who was carrying out a lot, of, a lot of this movement, he also died of natural causes. And uh, so right at that point, there was a new monarch who became... Uh, Queen for a long time. Who was she? Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, right? And this is if we think about or you hear about the Elizabethan era. This is uh, Queen Elizabeth. So from 1558, 1603, uh, and she turned back toward Protestantism, but not completely. She was she she kind of wanted to make in a way everybody happy, or maybe it was nobody happy. Um, but uh, the, the church didn't uh, enjoy the rest that they were hoping for during this time. In fact, many uh, still, there were still some at least that uh, lost their lives, some of the uh, Protestant pastors uh, that lost their lives. Now this was kind of the, the golden age, you know, the Renaissance, uh, you know, poetry, music, literature, uh, all of that was taking place during this, uh, this long reign of, of Elizabeth. And, yeah, again, no true freedom of worship. Things did head back in, in this direction. And some of the leaders that she put into place uh, were the right leaders. Um, the 42 articles that I mentioned earlier became the 39 articles. There was some work done there. Uh, and there was theological guidance that was given to, to, to keep the church uh, continuing forward, but apart from uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, apart from the Pope. Now, I just... I just want to list a couple of the things up here that uh, 
Because this is important. It may just seem to us like there were political struggles going on uh, and like this, this move back and forth wasn't real important. But uh, I just want to jot down a couple of the, the characteristics that they were headed away from here. Uh, and one was, uh, it was outward ceremonial. Of course, these are things we can see in the church today, as in, in, in some parts of the church, that there's an emphasis on the outward, of course, mass, uh, high church, uh, a, a lot of the outward visible things, and, and the mindset was given that this is what pleases God. This is what is right before uh, before the Lord. Um, this is a big one, right? Authority. In the church, uh, and so this was uh, a, a key staple of the uh, the type of government that was was uh, that had come to to characterize the Roman Catholic Church throughout, uh, in which you've got bishops uh, bishops who have power. It's a top down structure, uh, and the authority all comes from the top with the Pope having the greatest authority, and over time it came to be that the, the Pope could speak ex cathedra. What does that mean? Speak for God. <laughs> uh, apart from God's Word, uh, completely. Um, so an Episcopal polity or, or form of government, bishops that were in place. Um, also, when it came to Scripture, and we know this, right? Leadership only. Sorry about the messy writing. Um, so, leadership only. It was protected. Uh, scripture was not in the common language of the people. Um, and go on and on. Um, you know, worship was liturgy, mass. Uh, you know, again, this outward uh, ceremonial aspects. Protestants, on the other hand. Um, Focus the changed heart, um, and this is this is big. Authority from Scripture. Uh, the great call of the Reformation was uh, what was it? Ad fontis, uh, back to the back to the sources. Uh, it was get back to. You know the the original languages, uh, even to an understanding, because it's important. Exactly what God has put down in His Word is important. That's what we need uh, in order to live. That's our our food. Um, largely, now this is there were so this is where uh, so um, government, and I'm going to put <laughs> two things. Uh, I'll put it this way: elder base. And uh, congregational. Do we have that today at all? No. Uh, you know, this is another word I can put is presbyteros or Presbyterian uh, form of government, uh, which is representative. That's what we have now. Uh, it's, it's not one person. It's not bishops. Uh, there are elders. You go to presbytery meetings. There's not one that's in charge anyway. 
Uh, its elders throughout. Next week is going to be the General Assembly. Somebody mentioned at uh, uh, for the PCA, you know, maybe up to like 4,000 people or something like that. But all elders. Uh, and so, but then also congregational. And what we're going to see as we get into the uh, the, the Westminster Assembly, those who wrote these documents, uh, that both were represented. Greater on the side of the uh, of the Presbyterian. Uh, but congregational were very vocal and uh, had a lot of input into uh, these documents, and that, that became important. Um, a couple other things. Uh, I, you say on, on Scripture, Scripture goes out to all. Uh, I can, I can, that's big enough for me to write, write that. Scripture to all, and that's why the emphasis on uh, translating into the vulgar language or translating into the common language of the people. Because the people need to be able to open up God's Word uh, and, and, and take it and feed upon it uh, themselves. Uh, and then finally, you know, worship, biblical worship. Uh, and, and there were differences with, uh, with the understanding of the elements, the, the significant differences there. Um, so I, I just want to give a picture of this tug of war that was taking place was, was really important. And it's something that would be important to us today. This is foundational. It was between uh, a right understanding of the way of salvation and not. I'll just say it that way. Um, If you follow this all the way through to its end, uh, for the people, there there is no hope pretty much. Now, I'm not saying there were none who were saved uh, on this side at this point. Now, remember, this came out of a right understand the church, the, the Catholic church, the universal church uh, through the years had, had been in a right place. There were issues here and there, but uh, more and more yeah, through the Middle Ages and up to this point, this, uh, this is the direction you've all heard about uh, indulgences, and that's what really kicked off the Reformation on the continent. But this is the, the tug of war that was taking place. Any questions about this? Uh, we'll go on to the next monarch. Uh, so... Uh, next that I've got down there is uh, Elizabeth died 1603 or thereabouts um, after, after this long reign. And then you've got King James I. Now he was already in place, I think, as, as King James VI in Scotland, but now he became uh, King of England. He was a brilliant man. He wrote uh, this uh, document uh, that's still used today, the divine right of kings, uh, because he saw that God had, had placed monarchs and kings in, in their, their place and that they, they had a divine right to rule in the way that they, uh, that they saw fit, as long as it was right before him. So, uh, you know, a lot of, there were some good things. He was raised a Presbyterian and he came out of Scotland. And so many on the continent, or I'm sorry, many in England thought, and in Scotland thought, well, now with King James, now finally the church is going to be able to rest. Uh, it's, it's, we're going to be able to move forward freely, preach the gospel in the churches. Uh, all of this, he expect he was expected to be an ally to the Puritans. I'll talk about them in just a moment, but he wasn't. And uh, in, in fact, uh, in some senses, he. He made alliances, I'll just put it that way, with uh, someone on this side. Now, he's most known uh, for us for one reason. Why is he? Why is... Okay, you got it right there. <laughs> King James. King James version of the Bible, that's right. Now, he didn't write it, but it was written, it was, 
uh, translated for for him uh, into the English language, and, uh, and so the King James version. And so there were some a wonderful version. I mean, Jim's using it, so it's, it's got to be. <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Wonderful version, uh, and and used throughout the church uh, you know, to, to today and a, to a large extent. Um, so again, there were some good things that happened there, but not all of it was good. Now, during this time, uh, the Puritans, the rise of the Puritans, and that goes back to the late 1500s, you know, early 1600s, and on beyond that. Uh, but they they were those who were over here and had a, had a heart for the Lord, uh, largely those so English speakers uh, in in England. They then spread out. Of course, they came, some came to the U.S. Uh, at one point, they went to the Netherlands to escape uh, some of the persecution that was happening. Uh, but their central concern was was this: that the church cannot bind the conscience of a person apart from Scripture. So Scripture is our authority. And the church can't therefore take something that's outside of Scripture and say, here, you do this. And I'll say, this is something that we don't pay attention to enough today. And so today, if the church does that, and leaders within the church, in fact, we have it in the PCA at right at the very beginning of our Book of Church order that calls this out. And if we do this uh, to... The people, there's got to be a red flag that's raised. Uh, now, when it comes to Scripture, we need a right teaching of Scripture and, and, and to help people to bind their consciences to Scripture. But if outside of Scripture, and I could give some examples, some recent examples of, uh, of this uh, that, that happened during COVID, uh, there, there were some who wanted the church to teach certain things that aren't in Scripture, uh, but... To, to teach them because this is this is right, and and there are certain cases in which we've got to say, well, the, the, there are certain things in the Bible that would lead us to to hold to this, and there are other things on the same issue that would lead us to hold to this. So your conscience has to be your guide. You know, here's here's scripture, here's the teaching from scripture, but your conscience needs to be the guide on what you hold to, and. The church can't be the one to come down and say, this is right if it's outside of Scripture. Does that make sense? Because that's happened a lot over the, the yeah, history of the church. Yeah. It has to be something that's required by Scripture. So like, right, right. we can come out and thunder from the pulpit against uh, abortion. Yeah. But uh, we can't have somebody who to vote for. These people, you know, if there are a lot of things to take into consideration, you know, we're clear on something like abortion. That's a good example of who to vote for. Now, yeah, and so the issues that are clear in Scripture, the church, you know, must teach. And, and it's, it's, it's all, all of our hearts need to be bound to that. Uh, but we can't come out and say, no, this is, you know, this person, you need to vote for this person, or, or there are many other examples that we can give. So this was a central concern of the Puritans, and you can see why, uh, what it came out of when the authority uh, was was held in the church. Uh, also, of course, worship and, and, and church government were important, this issue of, of uh, bishops and, and the Pope, which is not what we find in Scripture. And we'll talk about that as we go through the confession, um, where that comes from, uh, that, uh, that, that thought that we need to have... Uh, top leaders, bishops that don't have a congregation within uh, within the church. Um, more preaching, what we see with the, the Puritans, less ceremonialism, 
And so the churches were largely very, very plain, uh, not at all like uh, uh, the Roman Catholic side of things. And the, the goal, uh, trust in Christ alone and serve God and, and Him only from the heart. So the heart uh, was important through and through. So this is, this is the Puritans, uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. We may later talk about it some, but they, the, uh, the characterization that the Puritans have been given in a lot of the instruction that we've had uh, is just it's just plain misleading. Uh, I'll just say when we're young and, and we read in some of the books about, and you know the, the, the Salem witch trials and, and some of those things, those are built held up as being. Uh, you know, this primarily characterizes the uh, the Puritans. Or what was it? There was one individual that said uh, something along the lines of, you know, if if you're a Puritan, there's not allowed to be any fun whatsoever. No fun. It's all uh, which, and I, I'm not quoting it correctly, but uh, but something along those lines. And it, it you know, just a wrong characterization. What we do see, by and large, with the Puritans was this uh, was a heart. For the Lord, love for the Lord, and, and you can see that in our library. I was going to count the number of, of books that we have either on the Puritans or by the Puritans in our library. I know they're in the hundreds, um, and so uh, wonderful, wonderful books uh, to read. Not all of them easy to, to follow. They, they were very wordy, <laughs> um, but some of us can be very wordy too. Yeah, sixty-eight. Okay. So the one I wanted to get to, uh, King King Charles, uh, we're getting there to the creation of the, the assemblies. So King Charles was James' son. He he was not as brilliant, uh, as, you know, as, as intelligent, you might say. And so whereas whereas uh, King James was able to balance things without making too many people unhappy, uh, King uh, King Charles was not able to do that. And uh, and so he. He did a, a lot of things that uh, that hurt uh, the church. So up to up until 1630, the Church of England was dominated by Calvinists, by those who who uh, followed the teaching of John Calvin and and, uh, and the heart of John Calvin. Uh, but there was a change that took place with uh, with King Charles. He began to put into place high church Arminians. And so essentially, uh, those who would hold to a lot of these things that we see uh, on the on the left-hand side of the board, uh, and, and those who are Arminians, uh, those who didn't truly hold to the sovereignty of God, uh, didn't hold to the, the Reformed uh, faith at, at all. Uh, one leader they brought in that you may hear about was William Laud, and he made him Archbishop of Canterbury. And William Law just he went in and, and wreaked havoc uh, in the church and took it back in this direction. So this is the Church of England. Took it back in this direction. Now all of that took place. It, it kind of worked. It, it looked like under Charles that uh, the church was going to to be under the Pope. But eventually, that it was it was going to be all of all of this uh, high church uh, looked like it was going to happen. But then he he kind of made a mistake. I, I think, or, or he would have characterized it later, I think, as being a mistake because he went to Scotland. And in Scotland, they had already, uh, government and uh, and the church, had, had they were reformed through and through. And they, the, the churches, they loved the Lord. And we see you know, a lot of the, the, the leaders, the, the pastors, uh, we can read their writings. And uh, through and through, uh, they were 
were reformed. They held to the same uh, understanding of God's word as those on the continent who were reformed. And the people loved uh, the, the, the teaching that they were receiving. They were coming to know the Lord and coming to walk with the Lord. King Charles went up to Scotland and he tried to force them to align themselves with the Church of England, what, what the Church of England was becoming. That's where he made his mistake because they said there's not a chance that that's going to happen. And, and they, they uh, uh, created a covenant. If you can imagine, this is on the government uh, side in, in, uh, in Scotland called the National Covenant, which bound them to, to continuing to follow the, uh, the Reformed faith. Uh, and so they use that to defend their faith and their practice throughout. Now, King Charles continued, uh, and in 1640, he it was there was going to be a, a, a war, and he was he was calling upon England to go and to fight against Scotland. And you can imagine uh, those in in England who were the Puritans, those who were reformed, they were totally against this. One other group that was against it uh, was Parliament. So Parliament, you can think of our Congress, two houses. Uh, you know, we've got a House of Representatives, the Senate, uh, also two houses there, um, and they were completely against the king. In fact, most of those who were in Parliament were Calvinists. Uh, remember, I said the church and and the, the state was intertwined, and. Uh, they were largely you know, many, many Puritans that were in Parliament. And so in their, uh, in their law books, in order for King Charles to raise money for this fight against Scotland, um, he had to have Parliament do that. Now, Parliament wasn't normally during this time. They weren't normally in session. They were called into session by the king. And so the king called Parliament into session to get them to raise taxes so that he could fight his war with Scotland. What do you think Parliament did? Well, their, their first act, the first act of Parliament, well, initially he, he called them in, it was uh, early 1940, I think, I'm, I'm sorry, early uh, 1640, he called them into session, uh, and then it, it wasn't going his direction, so he disbanded Parliament. He said, no. <laughs> but then things got more and more intense. He was beginning to be on the losing side, uh, and he had to raise money. And so he called Parliament back again. What do you think their first act in Parliament was? What? He wanted, yeah, well, it was, it was to, uh, it was an act that uh, he could not disband Parliament any longer. Uh, Parliament had to agree with it uh, in order to be disbanded. So this is what was what called, was called the Long Parliament. And so they continued in session. Uh, for uh, I, I think ultimately you know, 15, 20 years, something like that. Um, but they uh, refused him in his request to fight against uh, Scotland. This led to civil war. And so uh, that, that's around the time that civil war began in England. And civil war really had Parliament posed against the king, and both had uh, armies at this point, as you can imagine what, uh, what took place. Uh, well, within Parliament, and this is where um, we get to that section where it says uh, the creation of the Westminster Assembly. 
Um, so you got long parliament uh, that's in place. Uh, the king won't let people worship in accordance with the Word of God. Parliament wants people to worship in accordance with the Word of God. Uh, and so the result was this conflict that, uh, that took place. Um, and uh, uh, again, it was uh, 1640 that things came to a head. And just a couple of things that happened here. I'm going to read something that uh, an act that uh, the people of London petitioned Parliament in 1640. Uh, and this was what they said in this petition that gained thousands and thousands of signatures. They said, The government of archbishops and lord bishops and deans and archdeacons, in other words, the government of the church, uh, etc., with all of its dependencies, roots, and branches, uh, may be abolished. And all laws, they, they were asking that it may be abolished, and all laws in their behalf made void. And that the government, according to God's word, may be rightly placed among us. This was what led directly to the Westminster Assembly meeting. Uh, the Westminster Assembly, which is, is going to be this group of about 100, there were 120, I believe, you know, pastors and, and theologians. Uh, they also had, uh, they were voting members. They also had many uh, consultants that came down from Scotland. Uh, Scotland sent their very best to be part of this parliament. Uh, but at this point, there was a pushing for uh, pushing for this assembly to uh, to take place, um, and and that petition that I mentioned earlier, called the Root and Branch Petition, uh, is going. It, it took place in the midst of the Civil War, and so out of that, um, let me read one more time. Uh, this is in 10 uh, September 1642. The Houses of Parliament told the the, the Scottish General Assembly. So they were aligned or allied, allied with each other. Uh, Scotland and Parliament uh, and, and many of the people in England. And they told the Scottish General Assembly that their chiefest aim, that England's chiefest aim, Parliament's chiefest aim, was the truth and the purity of the Reformed religion. Not only against popery, against the Pope, uh, but against all other superstitious sects and innovations whatsoever. And so what they agreed to was called the Solemn League and Covenant. I've just got to mention that because that's what led to the creation of the, uh, of, of the assembly. Uh, and as I mentioned before, 121 uh, pastors, theologians from all over Great Britain, uh, advisory members from Scotland. You may know some of these names, Samuel Rutherford, uh, George Gillespie, uh, and, and among others, and they met in where they meet. I know Westminster Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, uh, we got the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they were the Westminster Assembly, and you got all the West, the Westminster Standards. Uh, they met in a couple of couple of different rooms there. One of them was the Jerusalem Room. You can go there today and visit the Jerusalem Room if you set up things ahead of time. I understand. Uh, get a pass to, to get in there. Um, but the makeup of the assembly was Presbyterians. It was originally to have some Episcopalians uh, as part of it. In other words, those who were told to, to much of this, they, they were drawn up because it was to be uh, kind of an open representation of, of the people. Now, they never showed up, uh, those uh, representatives. 
from the very beginning. But you did have Presbyterians, Congregationalists, um, uh, and, and others, but especially those were the two represented forms of government uh, that were there. There were five prominent, part of the assembly, five prominent Congregationalists. They were called the five, kind of throughout, they were called the five dissenting brethren. Uh, what does what the word dissent mean? To dissent? What? Just stand against? Yeah. Uh, and so, now, it doesn't mean that they weren't all together. That these were brothers and, uh, that were all together, uh, that wanted the same things, uh, but uh, amongst them, they had that um, they had a difference uh, with this uh, form of, of, of government. And so that, that led to a lot of discussions. And so a lot of what we're going to go over, um, it, it was impacted by that. And, and I guess the point I'm making here is that there wasn't just this one group that came in and, and, uh, and ignored others uh, and therefore kind of bulldozed their way. But these five descending brethren did have a say into what occurred. And so out of that, one of the things that, uh, that occurred later was the London Confession of it's like 1668 or something like that, which is it's used by Baptist, Reformed Baptist churches today throughout. It's, it's this with a couple of differences. Uh, what's the main difference? Baptism. <laughs> good, good. Get a hundred uh, baptism, yeah. Uh, but otherwise, largely, you know, a lot. There are a few other differences that are that are here and there. But I, I guess kind of the point is that within the Reformed faith, our goal is from our right heart to understand God's word in a in, in a right way. And and we are brothers and sisters together. And there are Reformed those who are Reformed uh, throughout the throughout uh, the world today. Uh, who have this as, as our heritage, but you know our, our our faith is the same. It's the same through and through. Now we can go to Armenians and say uh, if someone is Armenian yet in a faithful church. We might say they're inconsistent in uh, in in their understanding of, of God's word, but still they can be brothers and sisters in the faith and love the Lord uh, as as we do. But that's a significant change. That's a significant difference to not see God as sovereign. Uh, over all things, but uh, within the Reformed faith, uh, there are many. And, and this right here was a significant uh, element in the English-speaking church uh, was this coming together of, uh, of the assembly. Uh, and I'll just say uh, briefly, just got a few minutes left, that they were, the assembly was ultimately unsuccessful in its goal. Its goal was to take the Church of England from this and make it reformed through and through government, uh, and to have the, West, the, the, the what they were drawing up, the documents that they were drawing up, the Confession of Faith, the Catechisms, to have that as the basis for the Church of England. It's interesting. This is the way the Lord works. They were unsuccessful in that. Uh, a number of years later, uh, things things changed, and uh, it wasn't uh, King Charles at this point. But anyway, the, the Church of England, even though it still uh, contained Reformed elements, but um, uh, the the bishops and, and you know, the hierarchy and, and some of those things remain. Uh, uh, 
other other parts they they were much more reformed. You can see that today in uh, in the Church of England. Um, but even though they were unsuccessful in that, what they created has become the basis for uh, our what we use as our summary for understanding God's word throughout the world. Uh, reformed churches of all stripes and and, and types that that use this. Uh, throughout and so, in a sense, they were unsuccessful, but far great, far more successful than they ever would have imagined. I think in what they produced and in its longevity. Um, a couple of other things about the assembly. So they were tasked by Parliament. Now just try to get get your head around this. Uh, think today, Congress tasking a group of pastors and theologians. To, to do these things, to draw up a, uh, a document that describes the form of government that is biblical uh, through and through, uh, the form of government for the church. Uh, they were tasked with the confession of faith. And again, it, it was to replace the 39 articles. Um, now, when, when it was done, just mention, uh, if you open up this, you'll find on the left-hand side on... so. The left-hand side is the original. Right-hand side is the uh, the more modern uh, uh, version. But on the left-hand side, you'll find proof texts. Uh, so these references down at the bottom. They were tasked by Parliament. So so they actually produced. Uh, I believe it was the Confession, the Catechism. They provided them to Parliament, and Parliament said, "No, go back and put the proof text there." Uh, the assembly said initially, no, we don't want to put the proof text. Anybody, why would they not want to put proof texts, uh, which are texts that show where, well, you're not allowed, Garth. <laughs> no, just a minute, I'll, I'll get you, because maybe, I, I don't know if anybody, I, I just wanted to see if anybody, does anybody know why they, why the assembly, after they, they created this wonderful document, and, and when we look at all that they put together, all the... They used the work of many, many others, uh, confessions, catechisms, there were many, uh, and, and they produced what really is the, you want to call it the, the, the crowning jewel of, of confessions that's used in that way today. Um, but why would they not want to put proof text on? See people thinking. Okay. Okay. Now, actually, they did want to be held accountable, and, and all the way through, we do see they wanted that. And that, but that's that's a great because well, you might think the that. Assembly too, it was for debate over these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Garth. Uh, you, you, I, I was, oh, anybody else? <laughs> yes. They believed in the authority of scripture. Okay. So the only Absolutely. Thing through I can through. think of is that they were afraid the scripture taken out of context would be misinterpreted. Thank you. That's, that's at the heart of it. That, when you, so what they were doing was they were saying that all of Scripture, all the way through, as we go through this first section on Scripture over the next uh, uh, couple of weeks, I think it will probably take us three weeks, that first section that you find in the Confession, um, it draws all the way through the whole Bible and says, uh, what does the Bible say about its own authority? Uh, what does the Bible say about how we can know that it is the Word of God? What does the Bible say? And, and all the way through, pulling that out, there is a danger with proof texts 
that as we begin to use those, yes, and we do that, and, and we're right to do that. <laughs> but we've got to have in the back of our mind that we're not taking the full context in each case of every one of those proof texts. And it's so easy for those who are in leadership especially, but for any of us really, to, you, can, you can find it on the, uh, you can go down to Walmart, you can find cards that have a, a passage, that have a, a couple of verses of scripture in them. You can find that in Walmart, can you believe that? But uh, often, those are taken out of context. <laughs> and they're actually, sometimes they're, they're saying things that are not right. And so that was that was the reason they were afraid that it would be misused. Um, and they're right about that. Yet, Parliament said, you must. They did. And we use it today. It is useful, right? Proof texts are useful. But we have to be mindful about the context every time we use them. And really, it takes knowing God's Word kind of through and through to, to use it in the right way. Um, and, and therefore, we shouldn't just look to the proof text to understand what they're saying in the confession, that they're summarizing God's Word in its entirety. There are some things that we're going to see in Scripture that we're going to say, this is what Scripture says. There is no proof text. There's nowhere that Scripture actually says that. Where does Scripture say, I don't know, that, uh, that the Trinity... <laughs> Is you know it is a thing, right? Well, it does. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can see Jesus' baptism. We can see you know the three represented, and and we can come to an understanding of what the Trinity is all the way through Scripture. We put it all together, but that word is never used. There's not a Greek word that's trinitas, or you know I, I don't know. Uh, so it's not there. So um, yeah, it it is something to watch out for. Um, a couple other things that they produced, they were instructed to produce by Parliament uh, the shorter and larger catechisms. And so we've got those, we're going to use those some as we go through this. Uh, also a, a directory for public worship, which was to replace the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which had been used in the Church of England. Um, and, and so all of these documents they were to produce, and they weren't just given uh, authority on their own, but they were being told by Parliament. Uh, again, it, it should boggle your mind that uh, you get Congress saying, this is what you shall do. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, in a wonderful way, that's exactly what they, uh, what they did and what they uh, produced. So, uh, this, this, and, and I, you know, I'm kind of speeding through the last part of this, uh, but this was the historical context in which this was produced. Uh, and it was really this at the heart, this struggle that, uh, that led to the production of what we have today. Uh, yeah, Jim. I just want to say an aside before you conclude. Yeah. It's something that I found very confusing years ago. Okay. When I was uh, learning about the uh, confession on the Westminster Standards. But I consistently heard the word divides. The Westminster divides. Yes. I wanted to say that the members... So, so in other words, the members of the assembly... The members the of the assembly yeah. are refer, often referred to as the Westminster divine. Right. It doesn't mean that they have any special... That they have divinity. No, <laughs> other than the fact that they were members of the Westminster assembly. Thank you. Yeah. And that word divine often comes up when we're discussing and, and learning about it. You know, I, I intentionally have used the, the words pastors and theologians because <laughs> that's what they were. But in that day, that's what divines meant. They, they were those who were upheld as, you know, as, as being 
I mean, they, they, these were the ones that, uh, if you look at their readings, they had a, a heart for the Lord, a love uh, for the Lord, uh, and uh, for His for His Word, and to get the gospel out, and, and on and on, right understanding of Scripture. Uh, and so they were upheld in a sense, so that does fit. But it was known at that time that word "divines." So if we use that, it's not saying they're holy and other people are. They're they're uh, just divinely uh, um, you know, set apart, have, have a share in divinity or anything like that. So thank you. That's that's good because yeah, that was confusing for me as well. First looking at it, yeah. Okay, so so this is the this is the background. This is the history. We'll start next week with uh, with the first section with scripture uh, and work our ways our way through. But I did just want to give and and we'll see history as we go through as well. There are things that uh, are going to come out in order for us to have an understanding of the uh, of the confession uh, and of the, the standards there. Any other questions before I close this? All right, uh, let's. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your provision for us. Uh, we, we thank you, Lord, that um, you have ordained your church, a Catholic church, a universal church in a sense. Uh, and yet that church does err. That church does go astray. And even to the point uh, we see in which a church can become, whether it's a local church or a denomination, can become a, a synagogue of Satan. It can become that which is, is not a church at all. Uh, and thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us that which helps us to have a right understanding. And, and especially the Holy Spirit at work in the church through the hearts of the people. Uh, that we might have that mind, the mind of, of God, the mind that loves the Lord, that hates sin, even though we continue in it uh, often. Uh, thank you that you have given us this uh, this guide. So we, we thank you, therefore, that we can go back in church history to this important time and make use of that which you provided, that which you ordained, that which your hand was orchestrating all the way through. Uh, and uh, I, I pray that we would see it in a right way, that we would not uphold it, as being scripture, Lord, uh, we would see these were fallible men that were gathered together, uh, but at the same time that we would use it in the measure that it's intended and should be used. And therefore, we will grow closer with one another, closer with you uh, as a result, that we will know God as a result. Thank you for our gathering together today to, to go through these things. In Jesus' name, amen.